Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, episode 22. Welcome to another edition of the Axiom Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Brannon, and today we're going to be talking about vertical integration in small business. And if you went to college and studied business, you you probably have a vague memory of vertical integration. It's not something that comes up in the everyday small business uh, vocabulary, but it is something that we do see in growing businesses that are looking for more growth opportunities and for some businesses, it's a viable option to go searching for additional growth and influence and impact in their market. And in a lot of cases, and we're going to talk about this, it can even be tied to delivering better product, better service. So I thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss because we're seeing some very interesting case studies in our own practice of very innovative companies that are, for all intents and purposes, small on the grand scale of things. These are not billion-dollar companies. And you'll read about strategies for for vertical integration with large Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies. And a lot of times they're vertically integrating because they're looking for growth and they're not getting it the traditional ways of growing their core business. So they're looking for other ways to invest their capital to get higher returns for shareholders and stakeholders and all that stuff. So... When you see it in the small business environment, and these guys are doing essentially the same exact thing that these billion-dollar companies are doing, it's pretty exciting to see them do it successfully and to see them do it in many cases better than their larger brethren who struggle and stumble through a lot of these things. So what is vertical integration? Well, there's two different types of integration that you talk about in business classes. There's horizontal and there's vertical. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Vertical integration, the easy, and I'm not sure that I've ever read this in a textbook, but the easiest way for me to explain vertical integration is where a business becomes their own customer or they become their own vendor. And, and typically, they're becoming the vendor. So if you think about a long list of, of transactions in a chain from, if you're making widgets from, say, making raw materials all the way to selling the widget to the end user, each segment of the chain on one end of that little link there it's connected to a vendor so so somebody if i'm a link in the chain somebody is supplying product for me to do something with and then move down the chain well the person who's supplying the product to me is is the vendor and then i do what i do with it and then at the other end of that link there's a customer and then if you move to the next link my customer is seeing me as a vendor. And then my customer actually has a customer that that he perceives as a customer. And then it it keeps going on and on and on until you get to the end user. And it depends on the industry. It depends on the particular type of product. There could be two links in the chain. There could be 200 links in the chain. It, the the supply flow or supply chain uh, for some industries is very short. And for some industries, it's very long. And even when it's a short supply chain, if you really start digging, it usually is longer. It just branches out into additional chains. So here's an example of that. If you're, say, a, if you look at the um, 
pool building industry. So folks who build pools, residential pools, commercial pools, we'll talk about residential pools for a second. So if I'm a residential pool builder, then that means I'm the person who goes out and either speaks to a developer or a homeowner, and that is my customer. And so in in my link in the chain, at one end is the customer. Well, at the other end of the chain, there are several other vendors that help me do that. So I might have a vendor who does all of my site prep and excavation. I might have another vendor who does, um, who sprays the concrete pool shell. I might have another vendor who does all of my equipment. I might have another uh, vendor who does all of my pool cages. Uh, I might have another vendor who does spa systems. And so I am their customer. So I call the guy who does all of my site work and I say, I need you to um, dig a hole in the ground for this pool at 123 uh, Opal Street because I have a customer there and I'm getting ready to start a pool. And so he treats me like a customer and then he sends me an invoice for that work because I'm the customer for him. Vertical integration would be where I decide, you know what, I want to dig my own uh, pool, my own holes in the ground to put my pools in. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy the excavation equipment and I'm going to invest in the people so that I don't have to call somebody to do that for me anymore. Now I've just become my own customer or or actually become my own vendor. It gets a little confusing, but you get the idea. And then let's say at the other end of the chain, uh, I am, let's say that I do a lot of work for residential developers and and I decide one day, you know, these developers are going in and they're they're building these houses and they're building these pools. And uh, what I want to do is I want to develop my own property and then I won't have to I'll sell pools to myself, essentially. I'll become my own customer. I just became my own vendor, and now I'm going to become my own customer. Well, that's actually a combination of vertical and horizontal integration because I'm kind of going in, into a different industry as well. I'm getting into this, this role of becoming a developer. So there's, it's a little bit of both there. So in any, in any industry, you always have the opportunity to vertically integrate almost always up the chain. So if you are the if you're the final if you're the, the last step in the chain before the final end user, well, it's hard to continue vertically integrating down the chain because it's it really is hard to become your own customer after a certain point. But almost always, companies have the opportunity to to vertically integrate upward and become their own vendors because they're all buying goods and services to deliver to whomever their customer is. And sometimes they decide that, you know, instead of continuing to hire somebody to do this for me in the, in the form of a vendor, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and do this for myself. So those are the cases that we're going to be talking about today in our case studies are, are typically folks who have moved up the chain in vertical integration. Now, it's important that we define, like, when, when does this make sense? Because... You can get into uh, situations where you, you dig yourself a pretty deep hole, not to build a pool, but just to dig yourself out of in terms of your your business relationships or your financial position. 
And it's important that you understand when it's a good idea to vertically integrate. And so, so there's a few things that I see with the folks who are doing it successfully that I know well and I know their situations. And I think one of the biggest things is when you are the biggest customer of your vendor, then it might be time to start thinking about vertical integration. Now, not always, but if you're the biggest customer and you cannot get the quality or the service that you need, then that's usually when folks start to think about, why, why shouldn't I just do this myself? Like I see all the problems. I see all the deficiencies. I'm always on this company because they're not delivering what I need and we're their biggest account and even we can't get service. And maybe you perceive that they are mismanaged. Maybe you perceive that they have a flawed business process. Maybe you see an opportunity for innovation in the space. Whatever it might be, you're the biggest customer, so you have a ton of exposure to the weaknesses that are there. And there are weaknesses that you need to overcome in order to really deliver on your core business. Your core business is suffering because you can't get what you need from your vendors. So I would also say that it could make sense when you know the business from more than just the customer perspective. So there's a tendency, and, and it would always crack me up because I would I did work uh, in international tax for a while, and I would have these clients who were uh, immigrants to the United States, and part of the condition of their visa was that they were starting or buying a business here in the United States. And one of the, the most popular industries for them to get into was restaurants. And... I was always very skeptical because the the failure rate in restaurants is extraordinarily high. And here in Southwest Florida, the clientele can be incredibly finicky. They've got lots of stuff to choose from. And when somebody would tell me that they're going to open a restaurant, one of my questions was always, or even if they're going to purchase a restaurant, well, what qualifies you to do that? How much industry experience do you have? And it was not uncommon for me to hear something to the effect of, well, we eat in restaurants all the time. Uh, we've, we've experienced restaurants all over the world. We've seen the best restaurants. We've seen the worst restaurants. And we believe that that makes us qualified to run a restaurant. Well, the fact was they had only seen restaurants from the customer's perspective. There's a whole host of other perspectives in the restaurant business that you need to understand. Like you need to understand what it looks like from a kitchen manager's perspective. You need to understand what it looks like from a server's perspective. You need to understand what it looks like from the food wholesaler's perspective, from the landlord's perspective. If you don't, if you only know the business from one perspective, that of being the customer, you're blind to an incredible amount of things in the business. So the same thing goes for vertical integration. If you're considering some kind of a vertical integration move and you want to become your own vendor, make sure that you know more than just the customer's perspective because that's what you are. You're the customer. And even if you're the biggest customer for that vendor, you need to understand more than just that. And so there's a couple of ways that you can do that. Number one, you may have past experience. You may have have been out in the world and you have experience from inside that type of company, and then you just happen to get into an industry where you became a customer of, of that world that you were formerly inside of. And that's a great place to start as long as it hasn't been 20 years since you were last in the business. And you know some businesses don't change that often, but even in 20 years, 
some of the most staid businesses have changed drastically. I'll go back to restaurants again. You know, if you're if you worked in a restaurant 20 years ago in college, and and that was your last experience as an assistant manager in a restaurant, well, a lot has changed in 20 years. Not only in perhaps the technology that that uh, restaurants are using, but kitchen layouts have changed. Dining concepts have changed. Uh, back office systems have changed. Uh, marketing has changed. You know, and when you worked 20 years ago, there was no such thing as open table where people could make a reservation and just show up. And you, they never called you. They never heard about you. They, and if you don't understand these things, if you don't, uh, you know, five years ago, if you were opening a restaurant and you didn't, and you didn't know about Groupon, people would have been reticent to put you in a manager's position because that was the way a lot of people were marketing their restaurant businesses. So, if you've had experience uh, from inside the company. Go ahead and date that experience. You know, if it was a terribly long time ago, understand that things have changed and you may not be in the best position or or not the position that you think you are to know about what's actually going on from something other than the customer's perspective. The other probably the one of the best ways to to get that intelligence and to get that perspective from something other than the customer viewpoint is to go on benchmarking trips and this is something that I encourage all of my clients to do. And you'll typically need to go on a trip because you want to get out of your region, your area, the place where all of your competitors are. And you want to go somewhere far enough away that you can talk to people who are in your industry, in your business, and they're not going to be threatened by you as a competitor. So that they'll open up and they'll share some things with you about what's made them successful about some of the pitfalls, about especially about their failures, if, you're, if they'll share those with you, that those are golden. And if you can do these benchmarking trips and like sit down with your financial advisor, your CPA, uh, your controller, your CFO, whoever, whoever your numbers person is, sit down with them and say, what, what are the questions that you would have for somebody who's already in this business that we're thinking about getting into? And type up an agenda, type up a list of questions, a checklist, if you will, of things that you want to cover with that person. Do that for finances, do that for operations, do that from an HR management perspective, and do it from a legal slash compliance perspective. So, you know, what licenses are we going to need? Uh, What kind of annual certifications are we going to have to have? What code sections... uh, are there in our state that we're going to have to comply with if you're in some kind of regulated industry? Try to understand as much as you can and get as much inside intelligence before you make the leap because if all you know is life as a customer, there's a whole other world to running that business that you need to understand before you start sinking time and money into it. When when you when you go... Let me... Uh, let me stop for a second. So let me give you a good example. And this is a case study of, of somebody that is a client of ours and uh, I respect a great deal because he's just got an incredible amount of business acumen and seems to um, to really think about what he does before he jumps into it and has been very effective and very successful at doing some of this vertical integration. So this client... Um, moved to the area, and joined a real estate brokerage business. And the real estate brokerage did primarily residential real estate, and they did it uh, in a place that had a a very high number of vacation rentals. 
And so after watching a, a great number of transactions in which the real estate brokers were selling a home that was going to be a vacation rental. In other words, the person who was selling the home didn't live there, and the person who was buying the home didn't plan to live there either. Both parties had purchased this property strictly for investment, strictly to operate as a vacation rental property. And maybe they came there and stayed one or two months a year or three or four weeks a year. But for the most part, the property's its single-minded purpose was to be a vacation rental property and to generate income, short-term rental income. And so during the course of his time in this real estate brokerage, he saw all of these transactions coming through where the real estate agent is getting 2 3 4%, maybe 6% of the transaction fee as a commission if they're handling both sides of the deal. But at the same table was the property manager, maybe the property manager who had handled this property, maybe the property manager who was going to handle this property on behalf of the owner. And so the, the property manager takes reservations. Uh, they send cleaning crews in at the end of a, per, a, a family's stay. They prepare the property for the next person. If something happens during the week, um, you know, a smoke alarm goes off or a microwave dies or a television is damaged, they're the person that the, the vacationing family calls and, and reports the problem to and they deliver a replacement. You need a crib for a baby or something, all of that stuff. That's what the property manager in these vacation rental property companies does. And so the agent is there selling the property, and the property sells, you know, maybe every oh, three, four, five, six, seven, who knows? It could be 10 years before property sells. And that agent only gets an income, and that brokerage only gets an income when the property sells. But here, at the same table, there's a property manager, and the property manager is making 12 to 15, sometimes upwards of 17% of the um, commission income on the rental income, and they're making that every single year, and it's repeat business. And it doesn't take very many years for, or, or, or any years at all in some cases, for the commission on the rental property management to exceed what the real estate broker is earning every time the property sells. And so this very astute businessman who's getting ready to take over the real estate brokerage business goes, you know, we need to, uh, we need to horizontally diversify and create a property management company. Now, you can make the argument that there's a little bit of horizontal or vertical integration there, but for the most part, they're going into a different business. Selling real estate is different than managing real estate, and one typically is not the customer or the other. So he decides that he's going to start a property management arm. Excuse me. So he starts his property management company, and for it takes two to three years to get it off the ground and to build a, enough critical mass so that it becomes sustainably profitable. And as he learns the marketing game and he becomes more successful in getting reservations and marketing properties online and getting room nights up, he starts to run into a problem. And the problem is this. Because these properties typically rent from Saturday to Saturday, there's a crunch time on Saturday to get every property cleaned and get it turned around for the next guest to arrive. 
And at first, you're just hiring cleaning crews as you can find them. And so you'll hire maybe one crew has four people who can clean uh, rental properties. And another crew has 10 people. And another crew has three people. And another crew has six people. But not only are you managing six or seven crews, you're also trying to to man to help those six or seven crews manage the 30 or 40 people that work under them because they're not real effective managers. In most cases, the people who are running these crews are also cleaning the houses. And so you you have uh, somebody, some enterprising um, house cleaner, uh, you know, kind of property management cleaning person who can go in and turn a property around in a couple of hours and they get a little bit more work than they can handle. So they reach out to a friend for some help and then they reach out to another friend for some help and pretty soon they've got three people working for them. But they didn't, they never went into business to be a cleaning company manager. They, they're, they're a cleaner and they've got some help and they're making a little bit of money uh, because of the margin they charge on their help. But they're not good managers. So this client of ours was finding himself doing more and more management work with the cleaners and the quality wasn't exactly up to the standards that he desired. Not only was the quality not there, but because of some of the problems in managing them and, and having to manage so many of them and, and everybody, you're having to manage them, but you don't really get to manage them because they're not your employees and they're having trouble on the turnaround time. So now guests are being told when they come to check in that their vacation home that they had rented is not ready yet because the cleaning crew is running behind. And, he decided, you know what, we are, we're by far and away the biggest customer for all of these people, and we're definitely not getting the quality of service that we want, and we're not getting the turnaround time that we want, and it's impacting our core business. And those were some of the qualifications we talked about earlier for deciding when this might be a good idea to vertically integrate. So he said, we're going to start our own cleaning company. And at first... That was difficult. I mean, you can imagine you have to set up the systems. You have to, to – now, one of the other things we said is you have to understand it from more than just the customer's perspective. And so they did, they did know a lot about the business because they were on site and they saw that what was happening. They also knew a lot about the personnel problems that the, comp- the people that they were hiring were having with their own employees. So they knew a lot more about it than just the fact that they were the biggest customer and they weren't getting the service that they expected. And they even experimented with having their own small crews work alongside some of these other crews. So they got the chance to, tr- to try out things and to learn things before they jumped in with both feet to start their own cleaning company. But once they did, it grew very quickly, and they were able to standardize processes. They were able to raise the quality of service. They were able to reduce the turnaround time on properties. And ultimately, it turned out to be not just... a uh, uh, less of a headache, but it turned out to be financially profitable as well in terms of the cost that they were saving on uh, the cleaning expense they had been charging. And then they were able to do some fairly innovative things around damage deposits that generated new profit centers. And it, it just became a real success story. And then this client took a benchmarking trip uh, to another high vacation rental area in the country And he took the time to come up with some questions and to book some appointments ahead of time. And one of the things he learned from some of these other property management companies is that they had standardized all of their linens. 
So to give you some background, what would have happened even after they they created their own cleaning service? When the house cleaner would get there, the first thing that they would need to do is go to all the bedrooms and strip all of the bedding off of the beds, throw it in the washing machine, go to the linen closet, take the fresh bedding out, make all of the beds, finish cleaning the house, and then finish the wash. And a lot of times they were sitting around waiting for the sheets to dry. And so once all of the bedding that had been stripped off was dried and folded and put away, they could finally leave the property. But th- this was the bottleneck. By far and away, the longest thing or, or the, the, the longest duration thing they had to do was turn over the used bedding. So they decided, uh, well, when they, when they took this benchmarking trip, one of the companies that they visited with talked about standard linens. And so they came back and they said, we're going to standardize, standardize linens, meaning they went to every property owner and they said, we know that you have these really nice pastel, you know, 800 thread count sheets or whatever they are, but we're going to give this back to you and we're going to charge you $200 to, um, we're going to charge you $200 to purchase a new linens package. And that Lennon's package is going to look the same for every single property that we operate. And so now what they were able to do, once they had all of the old Lennon's out and they had standard Lennon's in every single home, all they had to do was the cleaner would show up with a fresh batch of Lennon's. They would strip all the beds. They would put the clean Lennon's on. They would take all of the, the dirty Lennon's and they would throw them back in the bag, put them back in the car, clean the house, and leave. And there's no longer any sitting around waiting for the wash to finish, waiting to dry, waiting to fold, waiting to put away the old linens for the following week. And they they would have to bring those linens back, and they would have to hire somebody to do the laundry. And so now they very quickly start to become a very large laundry customer in this area where they were working. And it didn't take long before they decided, you know what, we're not getting the quality of laundry. It's, it's costing an awful lot to get it done. Uh, it's not being turned around properly. We see a lot of inefficiencies in the operation, and there's room for improvement here. So they, they built their own facility, they installed their own equipment, and they started doing their own linens. And there, those are two cases where they became their own vendor and they were able to vertically integrate and not only improve the the level of service that they're providing to themselves, but also uh, raise the bar in terms of profitability. So they're saving money because they've become their own vendor and they've also raised the bar on the, the level of service to the point where they couldn't get that same level of service from anybody else. They can provide themselves superior service and and realize financial gains at the same time. So where are some cases where it makes a lot of sense for you to jump in? Or or I would say, where, where, when do you have a green light to go ahead and do this? And I have these conversations with clients. When we're talking about growth and we're talking about areas, new strategies for growth, Occasionally, vertical integration will come up, and we'll, we'll get to a point where we say, okay, we do know a lot about this vendor's business, and we know more about it than just from the standpoint of a customer. It's definitely impeding um, our ability to grow, and we know that we're 
pretty much the biggest customer, one of the biggest customers. And and they go, so we think we should vertically integrate. And I said, well, let me ask you a few more questions. Number one, at the very top of the list, has absolutely nothing to do with the the direction you're planning to go. It has to do with the place that you currently are. What I mean by that is, do you is your core does your core business have good processes? Because if your if your core business doesn't have good processes, you have absolutely no uh, you have you have no business going into another industry where, by definition, you're going to have to write a whole lot and create a whole lot of new processes and train people and new processes and monitor and hold accountable and refine new processes. So if you don't have good processes in your business, not only are you not most likely not capable of going out and creating those processes for a whole different business, but an incredible amount of your time is probably spent making up for the fact that you don't have processes in your core business because you're putting out fires, you're having to handle ad hoc situations, you're having to take over things from subordinates and direct reports because there's no process that tells those people how to do those things. The client that I just talked about in the vacation property management arena had incredibly good processes in the real estate brokerage business before they ever decided to venture into property management. And they had incredibly good processes in the property management division before they ever decided to go into cleaning. And they had mastered all three of those before they ever decided to go into uh, the laundry business and the linens business. So if you don't have good processes, Focus on those because I guarantee there's room for profitability in your core business just by improving your processes. So focus on that first. The other thing that I would say that would be a good indication of a green light is if the direction you're planning to move in does not require huge amounts of leverage. And here's what I mean by that. If you're going to have to go out and borrow a bunch of money to make this happen, you're signing up for an extraordinary amount of risk, and I would not advise you to do that. By, by definition, what you're about to do has a lot of risk in it because you're doing something you haven't done before. This isn't like where you're just gaining market share by buying a competitor, and you already all you're going to do is bring your existing processes over to a new location or those existing processes to another set of customers. This is where you're going to have to learn a completely different business. And yeah, there's some overlap. Yes, you know what it's like to be a customer and you know what customers want if you're going to vertically integrate up. But you don't know a lot of other stuff about that business. So it's already risky. The other thing that is inherently risky is assuming debt. So if you're going to load up on a lot of debt to make this happen, not only are you adding the risk of moving into a new business, you're also adding the financial risk of more debt. And in my experience, that's a recipe for disaster. I would not advise you to do any of this if it's going to require a lot of leverage. If you can do it out of the cash that you have on hand or if it requires uh, very minimal working capital and then it can self-fund um, after that without debt, meaning that maybe uh, it doesn't take very much to get started, the first few machines that you would have to buy or, or facilities that you'd have to purchase, they don't cost very much and you're not going to have to borrow to do it. And then if it becomes successful, you'll be able to expand and scale that up from the profits that you derive out of that. Then 
okay, maybe maybe that's a good thing to do. And this, I think vertical integration in service businesses is inherently less risky for this very reason. In service businesses, you don't require a ton of capital. What you usually require is labor, and labor you can scale as you go. And if you don't have the scale, then you just don't hire the labor. Or if the scale drops, then you make adjustments to your labor and lay some people off so that you don't have to continue the fixed cost. But debt, you can't do that with. If you borrow a million dollars, you can't go back to the bank later and say, I would like you to adjust that to 500000 even though I know I got the million because I can really only afford the debt on 500000 It doesn't work that way. So the payment is on a million dollars worth of debt, whether business works out well or whether the business tanks or whether you need three more months than you thought to get started, which leads me to my second point. I would say that you have a green light to do this kind of stuff if you realistically have one to two years to figure it out. And that bears out not just over the case study that I just gave, but probably three or four other case studies of companies that decided that they were going to vertically integrate and move up where they became their own vendor. And they, in many cases, would have to retain their existing vendor relationships while they learned the ropes of this new business that they were going into, which requires a little bit of a tightrope walk. Because at the same time you're purchasing from this company, you're ultimately going into competition with them. So there has to be a strategy for managing that because you can imagine that they're not going to be too excited to lose your business and they're definitely not going to be excited to go into competition with you. But the, the companies that are successful in this don't just flip a switch and assume that everything's going to happen the day after they make this transition. They take their time, they scale it up slowly, they take time to learn their lessons on the cheap, and they usually give themselves a a minimum of 12 months and usually somewhere between 12 and 24 months to figure this out before they have to stand on their own and they are their own vendor 100%. Some of those companies also will continue relationships with vendors. They might be supplying most of their needs internally through this type of vertical integration, but they still have, they still purchase, say, 15, 20, 25% of their service from outside vendors um, just for a capacity issue because they know that during busy season, they need to have those other people on standby, or if they were to have an issue at their facility, they don't want to put all their eggs in one basket with themselves the same way they wouldn't put all their eggs in one basket with one vendor if they weren't in that business themselves. And here's the last thing. I think it, the, the probably the best green light uh, that, that fires me up and makes me excited about a vertical integration opportunity is if there are going to be other customers beside yourself. So you're the customer of a vendor. You decide, I'm not getting what I need from this vendor. I'm going to go into their business, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become my own vendor. Well, are, there your, are your current competitors – Folks that you're doing business against in your core business, are they also candidates to become customers for this company that you're about to start to vertically integrate? Because if they are, then not only are you going to realize the savings on on becoming your own vendor, but you're going to realize gross profit on sales to other third-party customers. And I like it from that standpoint. I like it from the standpoint of... Um, financially we're going to save money by selling to ourselves and we're going to make money by selling to other people. 
But I think the biggest thing that it forces a potential uh, entrepreneur to think about if they want to vertically integrate is to take a real hard look and understand whether this is just a pipe dream or it's a real business opportunity. Because the the kind of litmus test, well, not the kind of litmus test, the exact litmus test for any business is if it's successful in the marketplace, meaning will you find people who will buy from you at the price you need them to buy from you uh, to make a profit? Because if you can make a profit, you'll be a sustainable. And if you're sustainable, you can continue to grow your customer base and build on your business. But if you cannot find customers, then you have an inherent problem and in that you really don't have a business. You, you have something that you're willing to work on, but nobody else is willing to buy. And this is a real danger when you talk about vertical integration. The danger is you are going to become that customer. So rather than have to go out in the market and convince third parties to buy your product or service, you've already convinced yourself that you're going to buy that product or service. And that can be a very dangerous place because nobody else is required to validate that decision. You're just going to spend the money being your own customer. If I ask you, once you vertically integrate and once you become your own vendor, are you going to have other customers or is it just going to be you? And if you can say, yeah, I've got... Um, I've got this company that I do business against and this company that maybe I don't do business against, but we share the same vendor. And I've got this other company over here that's buying from another company that looks similar to this vendor I'm about to become. And I think I can capture all of those or I can give them a run for their money or I can, you know, there's going to be me plus two or three others and then a smattering of smaller ones. And if you, if we can test those assumptions and maybe go out and poll those folks and find out if they really are interested in purchasing for us because they're experiencing a lot of the same quality problems that you're experiencing, maybe just not on the same scale because you're the, the big customer or the vendor that's having issues. But if you can bring to them some, some good intelligence about your plans and you can get some soft or hard commitments from them to become customers of this new company – that really validates not only the profitability side of things, but just the entire business venture to help us understand that this really is something that's viable. It's something that's needed. And in the long term, it's going to be something that's successful. So let's say that you've listened to everything that we've talked about so far. And you're like, I, I think this is what I need to do. Uh, you're preaching to the choir um, I, I like the examples you've given, everything you've talked about as far as when it makes sense and when, what the green lights are. I got that, so I'm ready to move forward. What, what, what do I do next? Well, I'm going to go back to some of the stuff we've already talked about, and it, but I'm going to frame it in terms of next action steps. So number one, the, the very first thing you need to do is identify what are the pain points that you're trying to solve. And I think you should really focus on the pain points because there's a tendency to think, well, I know this guy that I'm buying from is making a killing by selling me this thing that I use, and I would like to make that killing instead of have him make the killing. And if all you're talking about there is making the killing, then you're, you're talking about a financial decision. You're basically talking about the economics of the situation are so attractive that I want to move up the chain and I want to vertically integrate. And I do not think that that's a smart idea for small businesses. It may be a very viable option for some of those large Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies that we were talking about earlier. 
but I don't think it's a good idea for small companies. And here's why. You do not want to compete because of cost, because you're going to be competing against somebody who is a very good operator. And you have not proven yourself as a very good operator in that business. If you can't identify pain points, if you can't tell me what frustrates the hell out of you about your vendor and what you would fix on the first day of becoming your own vendor, then chances are your vendor's a pretty good operator. And you don't want to go into business against that person because I will bet you that your very good operator that you have right now that, that's providing services to you, who's got 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years of experience, is going to beat the pants off you, the brand new operator who has zero experience. So I never like to see companies make vertical integration decisions or start to tread down this road strictly because they perceive the economics as being too attractive to pass up. Yeah, the dollar signs, you know, you may hate paying as much for that product or that service as you have to. But if you can't, if you don't have any gripes about how they're delivering it to us, or then, then you're probably getting your money's worth and you're getting good value and you don't need to go compete against that person because you're going to lose or your customers are going to lose because you're going to be delivering to them something inferior to what you're able to go out in the market and just purchase. So I'd say number one is identify the pain points. Once you have all the pain points identified, you have to realistically ask yourself if you can fix them. And what I mean by that is there's a difference between asking the question, can I fix them, and asking the question, can anyone fix them? There are some things that are just inherently frustrating to absolutely everybody who's in your position buying from the kind of vendor that you're talking about becoming. And if that's the case, if, if nobody has been able to fix this problem, then you're not talking about a situation where you're going to vertically integrate and just put in good processes and become a success story, you're talking about a situation where you're going to have to bring significant innovation to the table in order to solve this problem that nobody else has been able to solve. And I'm not saying that you can't do it. I'm just saying that it's highly unlikely that you're going to get involved in the industry for the very first time and then solve this problem that people who've been in the industry for a very long time have been unable to solve. And I'm not saying that you can't innovate. I'm not saying that we don't need innovators. I'm simply saying that if this is not your core business, it's, it's unlikely that you're going to be the person to innovate. And I know that there's examples of, of guys like Elon Musk who seem to be able to go off and innovate in just about any industry they enter. But I would venture to guess that he has a skill set that's remarkably different from yours and mine. And we should probably stick to the things where we can just insert good, sound business processes and make a difference or have a competitive advantage over the people that we're currently using. So number one, identify the pain points. Number two, ask yourself if you can fix them with processes or if it's going to require extraordinary innovation because nobody else has been able to solve these problems either. If, if you can identify the pain points and if you can, in good faith and conscience, say, I think I can solve these with, with good processes and, and because I'm a good operator, the next thing to do is go to school on operations. Take those benchmarking trips. Identify a region that you can travel to. Um, set up the appointments ahead of time. Pick a region that's got a big enough market that there are several competitors who will speak to you. 
and if required, sign non-disclosure agreements or confidentiality agreements for them so that they can rest easy. You're not going to divulge their secrets to their competition. And go to school on operations. Uh, pay for the time of somebody that in your area who's been in the industry and have them walk through what you're thinking about. This is an, a great opportunity to vet potential managers that you're going to have to hire and get intelligence at the same time. But you have to go to school and operations and start asking yourself all of those questions about perspectives other than the customer perspective that you're so familiar with. What, is it, what are the wholesaler relationships like? What are the, what are the employee and HR issues they face? What are the systems and all? who are the vendors of, of this vendor that you want to become? Who are their vendors and uh, what are the major things that they spend money on? And what are the big decisions that they've all had to make in the last five or ten years around systems, whether those are computer systems or compliance with regulatory changes or any of that stuff? Go to school on operations. And, and the, so that's number three. Number four is to build the financial model. And this comes last for a reason. If you really have, like I said, if you can't identify the pain points and the only thing that's attractive to you is the financial model, then you're probably going to get your pants beat off by a better operator than you. But if there are significant pain points and they really are a poor operator, then you have a, a, a standing chance if you'll put in good processes. So if you think you can do that and you can learn enough about operations and you're still not scared off, then I want you to look at finances because I don't want you to get blinded by finances. Finances are the easiest thing in the world to to get disillusioned by because it's all hypothetical. It's all in a spreadsheet. And one little change on a spreadsheet can make all the difference between success or failure. So at this point, I don't even want you to get to a spreadsheet. I want you to start thinking about the financial model as far as back of the napkin or back of the envelope type of financial planning. Like what are the significant... Um, metrics, KPIs, what are the significant operating metrics that this particular industry you're thinking about moving into operates at? So, for instance, in the case study I gave, the business owner that was thinking about going into the laundry slash linens business knew exactly what the price per pound to uh, th- that all of the linen services in the area were charging and he also knew the cents per pound that it cost in terms of equipment depreciation costs and labor and utility bills and all of that stuff. And so when he put those two figures on the back of a napkin, he knew that he could be plus or minus 25% in either direction and it was still financially viable. And that's what you're looking for. If you can do back of the napkin, back of the envelope type planning, financial modeling around this, and at plus or minus 25% either way, in your revenue projection and your cost projections, it's still a financially viable decision or break even at worst. Then you kind of you've, you're, you're onto something, and you should start putting concrete plans in place to move in that direction, in terms of hiring folks to to bring on that know about the industry and can be your operators in terms of equipment that you might need, location that you might need, facilities that you might need, and then start doing a little bit of the work for yourself. Not all of it, but just a little bit of it. Keep it under wraps. Don't go out and shout from the mountaintops that you're now going to be the best the best uh, linen laundry slash person in all of 
all of the state because you're going to start doing a little bit of your own business. Keep keep your head about you and just try it out and see if everything works out the way you thought it was going to be. You're going to learn a lot of stuff you didn't know. You're going to learn a lot of stuff that you didn't even know that you didn't know. But if that proves successful, then you can gradually ramp up production so that you're becoming more and more of your own vendor. And, and eventually you're out there in the market trying to get additional customers. So I still think that vertical integration for small businesses is a very intriguing and exciting type of concept because you don't see it that often. You usually see it in the much larger companies that get written up in Harvard Business Review and publications like Fortune and Forbes and Inc. But it is a viable, a viable I guess, alternative for business growth or, or avenue to business growth for small businesses but they have to go about it in a little bit different way because the larger companies are just able to go out there and hire the existing management team of a company and fold it into their current operation, whereas small businesses are really going into this business themselves. They're typically not purchasing uh, an existing supplier, at least the ones that I've been involved with. And these are businesses where their core business is maybe 2 or $3 million, maybe 5 or $10 million, and they're going out and purchasing a vendor, and that, uh, that revenue stream internally may be anywhere from a $1 million to $3 million revenue stream internally in terms of them buying from themselves now. So I, I think it is an, in, an interesting option for some businesses, but like everything, uh, in the small business space that we practice in from 2 to $20 million, the risk for failure is a lot higher. So you have to go about it in a little bit different way. So I hope it's been helpful to you. Um, send me some feedback. You can find show notes at axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 022. And I look forward to seeing you here next week.